We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians 10 today, Winning Mind Battles Part 2. 2 Corinthians 10, read the first six verses. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base towards you, but when I'm absent, I'm bold towards you. At least that's what they all said about me. That's what he's saying. But he says, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. But though we walk according to the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So part of the purpose of Paul writing this letter to the Corinthians is because they were under attack. They were under attack. And the attack, if you just look outwardly, it seems to be just coming through men that they were these false apostles, false teachers. And if you read through it, which I would encourage you to do, all of this comes out that they're trying to undermine him. He's having to defend himself. They're saying things about themselves, putting themselves above him. What they had done is they had usurped Paul's authority and they'd even denied his apostleship. You know, they're basically saying, you're not like us. You're not really even worthy to be an apostle. They're saying you're weak in presence. You don't have eloquence. You can't generate large enough offerings. You have to work. They were talking him down amongst the Corinthians about that. They're like, you're timid and meek, which was a put down back in the Greek culture. Not only that, but you just don't have these grand visions like we have. And so Paul has to say, well, I think I got probably the grandest vision of all. <laughs> I just don't want to have to boast about it. I really shouldn't have to. But he said, here, I'm going to let you all know. And they were saying, you know, Paul, you are hardly a leader worth following. And they're saying all of that while these men are in Corinth, they're undermining Paul and they're preaching and teaching error. And they're seeking to lead people astray to where Paul has to correct all that. And so Paul says, even though our warfare appears to be one with flesh, with men, with these apostles, what they're saying about me, how they're boasting about themselves and their abilities, what they seem to be teaching, what he's telling us here is in fact, and we get this all through the New Testament, there's a spirit behind what they're doing. There's a spirit behind that, and the true source is Satan. He's telling the people, look, we're dealing not with flesh and blood, but we're dealing with spirits that are more cunning and more powerful than any mere man. And so he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. He's like, that would be like trying to defeat Hitler with a pea shooter. You know, it's not going to work. So he says the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but they are mighty. That's our word dunamis, powerful. They'll overcome any obstacle, but mighty through God. In other words, he's saying our weapons that we're using to fight these strongholds and tear down this air and all this these men are trying to build up, he says they're mighty through God, divinely powerful. They will work. And the problem with us, though, as Christians, all of us in here, is that we tend to forget because when the fall happened, you lose your spiritual vision, so to speak, and you deal with everything in the natural and material realm. That's the people in the world. They deal with everything that way. They don't deny the spiritual exists, but they live their life like it's all just in the material realm, make all their decisions that way. And we need to remember ourselves as Christians, this is why we're looking at this and what Paul's reminding them of, is that 
we're dealing with powerful forces. There are powerful forces arrayed against us, designed to destroy us. And the way they do that, we talked about this last time, is they attacked our minds and our thinking processes. They're constantly bombarding us. It's coming through people and the entertainment, the media, schools, religious leaders. Like I said, entertainment, and I would say even especially music. Music is an effective way for the devil to get his message through, and he's real good at doing that. All we see is people. We see people singing, talking, preaching, whatever, but behind every worldly person, there is a spirit that's influencing them. I mean, behind every person on this earth, there's either God or the devil. That's what the Bible teaches, clearly. It's not like we have neutral people out there. It's one or the other. It's not my opinion on that. Ephesians 2 says this, beginning in verse 1. You don't have to turn there, but he says, and you he made alive, speaking to us, because we were dead, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And who's controlling that? He says, according to the prince of the power of the air. And listen to this, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. And he goes on to say, that was all of us. I'm not going to quote the whole Ephesians chapter 2. But he's like, nobody's left out of that. Being controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. So that prince of the power of the air, he now presently is working in the children of disobedience. And that works in is the same word that's in Philippians 2, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Works in you. That's what the devil's doing with his children. God's doing that with us. He's doing a work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the devil's doing the same thing with the world, people in the world. He's energizing them, enabling them to do and to will his good pleasure, which is not good in that sense, but it's what he wants done. So he inspires people in the world to promote his agenda. And his agenda has only one goal, and that is to blind men to the knowledge of God, which would be what? His holiness, his goodness, that he's true and godliness. He's blinding men to all of that and trying to keep them in their sins. Now listen to Ephesians 6, it says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not against men that we wrestle, and we really do tend to forget that, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Saying there are spiritual forces arrayed against us. Spiritual rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Those are some big adjectives, and he's saying that's who we, each one of us in here, wrestles against on a daily basis. We should be. Shouldn't just be giving in to them. We think we're wrestling, like I said, against human adversaries, people, but it's not just human ideas, human opinions, human depravity, or human philosophy, but the source, what's energizing, what's behind every one of those faces are evil spirits. That's what's going on. Satan can attack us physically, can he? He does, and he does do that. But his main, I believe, his main thrust of attack is on the battleground of our minds. And with most, he is going to be successful. Do we realize that? Especially in the end times. Because you read Revelation 12, and here's what it says, verse 9. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, 
what it says about him, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and not just him. It says his angels were cast out with him. Because he's not omnipresent, omniscient, but he's got plenty of help, doesn't he? It's working on everybody, and he's going to deceive. That word means to lead astray from the truth, and that's going to happen to the whole world. That's Second Thessalonians scripture. We said the battle in the mind is for what? Truth. And because men receive not the love of the truth, what does it say? God shall send them a strong delusion. That's another mental word that they'll believe a lie. They'll have everything upside down. And that is what is happening rapidly now. We have things upside down. Who's the one that the devil, he said he's cast to the earth. Well, who's the one he's going to work through? The Antichrist. He'll be the ultimate man of deception. He will. He's going to be the best at it there's ever been. And there's been quite a few men that have led groups away. Hitler did it. He led millions away with his charisma and his speech and all of that. The Antichrist, there's very few. Only the elect are going to not fall under his deception. But listen to this. 1 John 4, 3 tells us we don't have to wait for that day to come. 1 John 4, 3 says that that spirit of Antichrist is already at work. He's already here at work. And 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, he says, Even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. You know when John was writing? He was writing at 90 A.D. And he's saying at 90 A.D. that many Antichrists have come. They're already there, and that's 90 A.D. And he called it the last hour. We think we're in the last days. The last days started back then, according to the Bible. If that was the last days, and many Antichrists were there, how many do you think are on the scene now? And what hour do you think we're in? If that was the last hour, just open your eyes to what's going on. God's judgment is just that close to being ready to fall. It is. These agents of Satan, the Antichrist, how do they operate? They don't just stay out of the church. No, I mean, there are plenty of warnings we have. It's Acts 20. Paul says, amongst yourselves, grievous wolves will rise up, not sparing the flock. I mean, we're warned about that many times. But they're going to infiltrate the church, and they're going to appear to be true ministers. Why? What's the devil's intention? He especially hates God's children. He brings these people up, raises them up to affect the minds and hearts of believers. To deceive means to cause the wonder, to lead astray by seduction. The root of that word means using a bait to get people away. And that's how it operates. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The Spirit speaketh expressly. That means this is exactly what is going to happen. That some are going to depart from the faith. And we need to ask ourselves, is that going to be me? Because don't think that it can't be you. Because then you're really in trouble. The warnings are there for us to take heed and pay attention rather than thinking, well, I've got it made. That's what they're all about. They're there to keep us in line, not to get us to doubt our salvation.
But he says expressly, that's what's going to happen. And he says, that the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed. And that has to do with the mind. Giving heed means you turn your mind to what's being said. You pay close attention to what's being said. To these seducing spirits and teachings of devils and coming through whom? Men and women doing what I'm doing this morning. Whether it's me or Brother Hannah, how many times do we hear, I don't believe it because I said, here's the point though, whether it's me or whoever, I wouldn't be anywhere that I didn't think the person was rightly dividing the word of truth. Does that mean like you might be off just on one little thing that you, I mean, I'm talking about basically they're rightly dividing the word of truth. I wouldn't sit there. Honestly, I wouldn't. But your responsibility though is to follow up because take divine healing. You can hear me, amen. You can hear someone share testimonies and all that, but it's you and your family that you're responsible for men, their life is on the line. If you're going to trust the Lord, you better know you believe it for yourself and understand that, yeah, that is what I think the Word teaches because you find plenty of people out there that will tell you that's not what the Bible teaches, that you need to trust God, that He will heal you, that healing's promised today. You'll find plenty of people out there that will tell you that and talk you out of it. We have a responsibility to find out what we believe for ourselves about everything. It's not like you can just take what I say or... Anyone else that stands in his pulpit, like it's just your opinion. If it lines up with the word or whatever, you're responsible for it. It's not my opinion in that case, is it? I hope I'm not standing up here. I'll sit down if I think I'm just up here giving my opinion. Honestly, I would, because that'd be real dangerous. But it's men and women standing in pulpits. Now, we read this last week, and since it's so close to where we're at, if you don't mind just turning over to 2 Corinthians 11, it's just a page back in my Bible. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, Paul writes, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And he says, and no marvel. No wonder about that. He says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He says, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed so they come across not as the devil, but as ministers of what's right, as ministers of righteousness. But he says there in verse 13, false apostles and deceitful workers. That word deceitful means it's a violation of trust in an effort to deceive. In other words, they've gotten people to trust them, congregations to trust them by the way they've carried themselves, by the way they are. But he says they're deceitful workers. They brought you in to trust you, and they're going to undermine you. They're going to steal your faith. They're going to preach a false gospel. Because Paul goes on to talk about that. And that's what happens. People, ministers that people have put their trust in because these ministers seem like they're concerned for them. They seem honest. You know, you never see anybody on TV that's off. They don't preach like they don't have a conviction about what they're saying. They are going to guarantee you what I'm telling you is right. Nobody preaches error like they're not sure. They, they wouldn't last a minute. And that's what happens. But Paul says here they're deceitful or treacherous is the word. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Transforming means they're disguising, they're masquerading. A masquerade party, what do you do? You go there to be somebody that you're not, right? You wear a false face and that's what they're doing. They're masquerading to be what they aren't. And they sneak in. You know how they get in? Because they're disguised as ministers of righteousness. Jude talks about them. He says there's certain men that have crept in unawares. It's 
not like people didn't see them. It's not like, well, you were back there the whole time and I didn't see it. No, it's because of the way they came in, crept in unawares. And here's what he goes on to say that they do, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, a license to sin, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to listen to that. I'm not the first person to say that, but yet people all the time are following people because of their charisma, because of their speaking ability, because of whatever, because what they say appeals to them in some way. And they're not looking at the word. You've got to get beyond personalities, whoever it is. Amen? Amen. And Elisa watched this documentary on KET, she was telling me the other night, called Violins of Hope. And it was about Jews in German concentration camps in World War II. And this girl was talking about her mother and sister. They were identical twins. And both of them were operated on by Joseph Mengele at Auschwitz. And Mengele, he's a doctor, and he was assigned to Auschwitz with the Jews, a doctor that never treated anyone, didn't treat any of them. You know what he did as a doctor? He experimented on them. And he would be the one to say, that one's going to the gas chamber, or the whole lot of them are going to the gas chamber. He had that kind of authority. But here is the thing. He, he liked twins, experimented on the Jews. He liked those twins, wanted to experiment on those. And the girl remembered that her mom, though, listen to this, she talked about Mengele, her mother did. She said he was an extremely handsome man. Hollywood looks, and he was kind to the children. He was charismatic, and... Lisa said that woman said that her mom said you were just instantly drawn to him. But if you know anything about Joseph Mengele, he was a very evil man. I almost would say pure evil. It's just nobody's purely evil. But he was pretty close, I would say. And this one prison doctor said of him that he was capable of being so kind to the children, to have them become fond of him, to bring them sugar, to think of small details in their daily lives, and to do things we would genuinely admire. And then these same children, tomorrow or in maybe just a half an hour, he's going to send them to the crematoriums. That was what this guy was. He's a picture to me of what Paul is describing as these false teachers. Their outward appearance, their personality, their charisma, their smooth words. And we hear about that in Proverbs and in Romans. Their smooth words draw you in, but behind the mask is a deceiver. And they operate on your mind. They seek to build strongholds. That's why what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 10. They seek to build strongholds, fortresses. That word is a strong military installation. That's what it means. Something that's basically impregnable in the natural. Very hard to destroy. And that's their purpose. So what are these strongholds that he talks about here? In verse 5, back in 2 Corinthians 10, he says... The pulling down of strongholds, verse 4, and he says what they are, casting down or pulling down, destroying imaginations. Your imagination is where you form ideas or mental images. That's what it is. And that's what the word conveys. It's calculated reasoning. It's, in other words, it's where you do your thinking. It's sometimes translated that. Reflection, your pattern of thinking. And Satan, whether we all realize it or not, is deliberately and systematically building strongholds and these lofty opinions, high opinions that really are raised up opinions against God in people's minds. And when those strongholds are built, they actively resist truth, actively resist 
truth of the Word of God. So when you present the gospel to someone, whether it's on the streets, a loved one, that truth will meet that stronghold of prejudice because they're like, this is what I think. You're telling me something. I mean, I went into prison and would just preach the, a simple gospel of you need to repent of your sins, realize you're a sinner, repent of your sins. Several times I'd had people would say, that's an alien gospel. I've never heard that. I'm like, what? Never heard that? I mean, that is the gospel. It doesn't get any simpler than that. I mean, literally, I'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. I thought, well, then what are people that are ministers going in that prison like, oh, what are they preaching? I don't get that. But these strongholds, they take many shapes and forms, and there's just too many of them to list. But the design behind every one of them is always the same. It's to keep men from the knowledge. That's what Paul's telling us here. It's to keep men. That's what we talked about last week. Blind in their eyes. So that knowledge of Jesus Christ and God cannot break through. That's what the design is due. So it's designed to keep men from knowing the holiness of God and also his great love from knowing his power and his willingness to answer prayer, to keep men from seeing this, that his grace is not the liberty to sin, which is the way it's basically being portrayed now, but is the freedom. It's just the opposite of that. The Bible in Titus teaches that God's grace is the opposite of the liberty to sin, but it's the ability to overcome it. Because it says in Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us this. This is what grace teaches you, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, not in the hereafter. It says, in this present world. In other words, if you're a Christian and you're not living soberly, righteously and godly now you need to question whether you're a christian because you say well we want to sing amazing grace and all these songs fine but that should be evident in your life by a godly life that's the evidence of the grace of god that's what the bible teaches how does that work how are these strongholds and lofty opinions built up if you would put something there in second corinthians 10 and turn back to second timothy 2 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes there to Timothy, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That rightly dividing means to cut straight. To cut straight. In other words, you're going to have a scriptural balance, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because what I would say is false teachers... They don't stand there and don't quote the Bible. They quote the Bible, or nobody would listen to them. But they don't cut straight. They cut it like this. And they've got too much one way and too little another way, and they're cutting. And that's what happens. They leave an imbalance. For instance, the Bible says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Amen to that. Amen. We should all get along fine. But do you know, it also says, if you're going to teach a balance, that now I also beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. I mean, you've got to have a balance there. So someone says, well, that's a lack of love to avoid somebody. Well, really? And that's not what Paul says, and I wouldn't say Paul had a lack of love, would you? And I'm just saying you've got to have a balance. So as much as life in you, amen, live peaceably with all men. 
Nobody wants divisions. But he says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, point them out. Make note of them is what it's saying, which calls divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And he says, avoid them. Or another example would be, to say you're preaching too much love and grace is like, you know, that's like cursing. But you can have uh, not dividing the word of truth to where it's all lopsided love and grace. To where no matter what you're doing, you're living with somebody, it's all okay. And not enough holiness, little or no holiness, and you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's one reason why we're preaching straight through books a lot of times here. You know what that does? Is that gives us a balance. We go through Mark. There was things in there and people were uncomfortable. It talked about judgment. It talked about, you know, rebukes. It talked about whatever. But there's also, we see the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? So you're getting the balance that way. And we need to be balanced. And I'm telling you, that's what's happening now. That's what's happening in this day and age. When that angle is cut and it's cut so much, the pie is so much sliced towards love and grace, then when a message comes on holiness, wrath, or judgment, that's when the strongholds go up. They go up because they've been put there. A brother just told me, I'm going to make this as broad as I can, just went and heard someone preach, put it that way, and told me, you know, overall it was good. And that's the way it happens. Overall it was good. But there's just that little bit of way it was slights, I think was the word used, on faith and holiness. And, and you hear so many things are called, oh, that's legalism. A lot of what's legalism is just what godliness is. It's not legalism to ask church people to be modest in their dress or to not watch pornography or sexually charged movies. It's not legalism to say, you shouldn't cuss. That shouldn't be part of your vocabulary. And I could go on and on and on. A lot of what's called legalism is not legalism. It's called holiness. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if I stood up here and said, you know, everybody's got to wear a denim jean dress down that far from their ankles, and we measured that's legalism, isn't it? And if you don't do that, you're not going to make it in. That's really the whole legalism thing is, if I do this, this is somehow going to gain me favor with God and get me in, and whoever doesn't, they're in trouble. That's legalism. It's not legalism to say you should live a holy life. So I had this book that I had to read at school. I wouldn't have chose to read it. The guy even said, a lot of you guys are going to have a problem with this book. And I had a major problem. I had a hard time getting through it. And the title of this book was No Perfect People Allowed. And the subtitle was Creating a Come-as-You-Are Culture in Church. Now that sounds good. Or it didn't really sound good to me even when I looked at the title. <laughs> but I mean, I got more notes written in that book than any book I had. I had to write a book review. It was very negative. Just one excerpt from this book. Listen, because this is what's happening. Here's from the book. He's talking about a couple in his church. Joseph and Tanya came into my office for premarital counseling. And as they sat down, Joseph scooted his chair close enough to grab Tanya's hand. And he says, they came to, I'll say blank church, and within three months both decided they wanted to follow Christ and were baptized. That all sounds good, doesn't it? They come there and they get, they want to follow Christ and get baptized, except for this. And I can't read all the rest of it after this, but he said, from previous conversations, I had already inferred that they were living together. So they come to this church and they are there for three months and they come to faith in Christ and get water baptized and all through all of this. And he knows it, the minister knows it. And afterwards, even they're living together. 
And you think, well, what's wrong with that? You shouldn't be asking what's wrong with that. <laughs> like I said, it goes on that they were living together the whole time, and I can't get into his whole conversations with them. But I had this question in my column next to that. How do you baptize a fornicator? How does that happen? It's not going to happen here. If I baptize somebody that's a fornicator, it was an accident. They lied to me because I'm not going to baptize someone living in fornication. The other thing is that he never confronts them and calls what they're doing sin. Never once. And he asks them to stop. <laughs> but never tells them, you need to repent. Never tells them the eternal consequences of what they're doing. Here's what he says. Here's his counsel for why they should stop living together. This is it. He says, I find that when most couples realize that it's in their best interest and that God is trying to protect and provide something better, they're willing to honor God. I'm saying, that wouldn't be my counsel. Well, it's in your best interest. Well, it is in your best interest. But not when you're considered a member of a church. Because I just would say Paul didn't get that church memo. It didn't come to him because he didn't say in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's just not in your best interest that you're living in fornication to that man. He said this. He said, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And Paul told the Corinthians, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He didn't play around with that, did he? He didn't say, well, it's in your best interest. He says, You're, you've offended God and, and in my spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hand him over to Satan. And he says, if anybody that calls themselves a member of your church is a fornicator and he lists on a covetousness, a drunkard or whatever, not to company with them. They need to be put out. The church, by definition, is not a place of unregenerate sinners meeting to find God. It's a meeting of those that are called out. That's what the word means, church, ecclesia, called out from the world, saints, Holy ones, those not living in sin. That's what our meetings are for. Because this was brought up to me way back when. Anyways, 1 Corinthians 14 says, if an unregenerate gets in your church, if it happens, it can happen. We have unregenerates in here today, but they're not members. But if an unsaved person gets in, Paul says, that believes not. And if you want to have a separate service, an evangelistic service, and I've been places it is, and I would do it. I'd be glad to do it. Someone says, Friday night, we're going to invite all the unsaved we can get in here. I'd be like, bring them in, and we'll have an evangelistic service, and we'll preach to them as best we can the gospel. That'd be fine. But this idea of you get your church, and you get your meetings, and you get everything geared towards bringing in all the unsaved, and everything's geared that way is not biblical, and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous, in my opinion. This is not an isolated incident, what I read about in this book. I know of many cases of where people are bringing in as members and making them members of the church in full fellowship with the group that are living in fornication, that are drinking, that are drug, I mean, whatever. I'm saying that's totally unscriptural. But that is not an isolated thing. It's a growing trend. You got to get back to what does the Bible say and not just what's being foisted on me and sounds good and appeals to my emotions. We need to be students of the Word 
And I haven't said anything today that hasn't been taught before from this pulpit. Not by me either. We've, we've heard that for years. And it's just the truth. So what I'm saying is the danger is, and all of that I gave a few examples, is if we don't know the word, if we don't go to the word to hear what's being said, get past all the emotion, all the culture, everything else, and say, what does the Bible say? That's what we need to do. That's how we need to determine truth from error. So another stronghold moving on here that I believe the Satan tries to erect. You could go on for months with this. Stronghold, I'm just giving a few here. But one is fear, phobias. And there's almost an endless list of phobias, fear of heights, closed spaces, insects, germs. I mean, you get online, I think there's thousands of them, literally. They name people who are scared of everything. But specifically, the fear of man is a common stronghold with people, being afraid of what people think. And we have these images that get up in our mind about what people will do, what they'll think, what they'll say. If we take a stand for the Lord in a lot of ways, not just to witness to Him, but just take a stand for righteousness, that we're not going to get involved in whatever. And He'll erect those strongholds, tell this is what the outcome's going to be. And the thing is, they usually never turn out that way. That's my first thing, is how do you deal with fear, the fear of man? What He's going to do, what He's going to say. And the first thing you need to realize is most things that you fear don't end up happening the way you fear that they're going to happen. They really don't. And he'll erect those strongholds and try to tell you this is what you're headed towards if you do this, that, or the other in a lot of areas, and it never generally ends up being that way. And the second way you deal with this fear of man is you have to realize that fear is a spirit, and it needs to be resisted. It's not a spirit that we resist in our own strength and in our own willpower. You don't tell yourself, I'm not going to be afraid. You know, you're, you're scared to death. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to. That's not how you do it. That's not what the Bible teaches. In 2 Timothy, apparently Timothy was having trouble being ashamed of the gospel and standing up for truth. Here's Paul's answer to him. We all know the verse where it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love in us. But before that, before he says that, this is what he tells him. He says, Wherefore I put you in remembrance, Timothy, that you stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. And then he says, For, because. So he's saying, Stir up that gift. And I look at that as you pray in the Spirit, whatever it takes to get filled with the Spirit, because he says, For, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So you take the context of that verse, and it tells you it's by being spirit-filled that you overcome a spirit of fear. So our weapons are not carnal, but they're what? Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's got to be spirit-filled. And David was many times in peril by men, wasn't he? Whether it was by Saul or by the Philistines. The way you overcome that is through being filled with the Spirit and by faith. In Psalm 56, which was written when he was in the hands of the Philistines and they were threatening to kill him, he said this, he said, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me. And then he says this, O thou most high, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. He's saying he's afraid, but that's not the time to quit. A lot of times you'll hear faith and fear can't be in it. No, that's not what David said. He said, I'm afraid. 
I'm in a situation that does not look good. I can't help how I feel, but I am going to trust in you, Lord. That's what he says. What times I am afraid, I will trust in you. Putting your trust in Almighty God. Being spirit-filled and putting your trust in Him and the faithfulness in His Word. Because He went on to say this after that. He says, In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. That's the answer. Read Psalm 56 if you're having to deal with that. The other way to overcome this fear of man or any fear, we can say fear of man, we can say any fear, anything you're fearing, is to realize that fear is a sin. It's a sin. Revelation 21, 7, He that overcomes shall inherit all things. I'll be his God. He shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a hard verse. I've always thought that's a hard verse. But that's a good verse to help you overcome fear, I think. And fear heads the list of the things that will send people to the lake of fire. Now, I didn't write that. Revelation 21.8, the fearful and the unbelieving. If you would turn back to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6. We're saying fear is a sin. This is the way you overcome this obstacle. Trust in the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. And look what it says here in Nehemiah. I want to read these 14 verses here. Here's how, what Nehemiah had to deal with. And this is how the enemy will try to build those strongholds of fear. It says, Now when it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sambalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come and let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, now, the plain of Ono, that place they're wanting to meet him at is the furthest place from Jerusalem you could get and still be in that territory. They're trying to get him isolated so they can kill him because he says they thought to do me mischief. Verse 3, I sent messengers unto them saying, I'm busy. I'm doing a great work so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort and I answered them after the same manner. And then sent Sambalat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, so he's threatening him here, trying to build this fear up. It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause you build the wall, that you may be their king according to these words. And you have also appointed prophets to preach of you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now it shall be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. And he wasn't going to fall for this one either. And then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as you say, but you feignest them out of thine own heart. You're making up these lies. Look what it says in verse 9. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So they're trying to build up walls of fear aren't they? That's what the whole idea is. In verse 10, he says, afterwards, Nehemiah says, I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabil, who was shut up. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. 
So he's telling him it was illegal. Nehemiah was not allowed in the temple. That was for the priest. He wasn't allowed there. And he said this in answer, verse 11, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? He says, I will not go in. And look what he says in verse 12. I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Therefore, verse 13, was he hired. Why? That I should be what? Afraid. He was sent to Nehemiah to make him afraid and do so, do what he was asking him to do. And what would be the last thing that fear would lead him to do? And sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. And he says, My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works, and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. As I've heard said in the past, as plainly as God can say it, fear is a sin. When it's a matter of doing his will and not doing his will, to give in to fear is a sin, isn't it? I mean, that's what we just read. We talked about fear. Another stronghold is the what-ifs. The strongholds are imaginations, and that is where the what-ifs come in. You decide you're going to do something. I'm going to say, trust God for my finances, trust him only. And then comes in all the what-ifs. What if he doesn't do this, that, or the other? And they become strongholds that try to overcome you. Or I'm going to trust God to bring me a mate, one that's born again and spirit-filled and speaks in tongues, and all of a sudden here comes the devil with his strongholds. Well, what if you never marry with an idea like that? Or what if you're only limited to three choices because you're so narrow and you can't get on Match.com to find your mate? And on and on and on. Doesn't he have his ministers that will try, whether it's preachers or people or friends, even well-meaning friends, they're going to plant these seeds of what if. And if those seeds keep growing, they become strongholds in your mind and in your heart. And my wife was telling me, we were talking not about this, but about trials. And she said, you know, back when she was going through a very severe heart trial, all the symptoms there and she had to go up and visit her dad, and it was just a trial just to get up there. And what does her dad sit and talk to her about? All these heart symptoms that he's had in the past and all the results and all the how it's almost killed him and all that. And she's listening to that. She said it was all she could do to get back home. I don't know if it was the next day or when, but soon after that, she's going to get her hair done at the hairdressers. And she said, you know, what's funny is this has never happened before or since. But at that particular time, when she's in that particular trial, all the hairdresser and all the women in that hair salon wanted to talk about were heart symptoms and heart attacks and people having them and all that. That's the way the devil works. Builds those strongholds, tries to erect those what-ifs. He knows what you're believing for, and he inspires his age. I'm not saying the hairdressers, but inspires people to say things to get these strongholds to get you to fear, to give in. Amen? And not trust him. That is how it works. And what about the stronghold of depression? Depression, that can be a stronghold, always caused by a spirit and allowing those negative speculations to reign, those thoughts, those thought patterns to reign in that way. You know, I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones say this one time, all depressing thoughts come from the devil. And I had to think, I thought, you know what? How would you say any of that's of the Lord? All depressing thoughts come from the devil, and that's true. 
So how do you deal with that? David in Psalm 42 said this. He said, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. And he says, therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan. So when David was depressed, when he was fighting depression, he talked to himself, told himself to hope in God. That one day, he says, that the light of thy countenance, your face is going to shine upon me again, even though it seems far away right now. That's how he had to deal with that. And he said he would do two things. The two things he said he would do when his soul was disquieted within him is he said, I will remember him. Remember all of his past faithfulness. Say, so you have to overcome that. That's what he did. Like when he was at Ziglag, if you remember that story, his David and his men, they come back to Ziglag. And all they find is the cities burned with fire, their wives, sons, and daughters. All are taken captive. And it says this, Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Do you think David was tempted at that point to be depressed? I mean, that was a very depressing situation. Lost everything he had, and mostly his family was what he was upset about. And it says this, David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. And do you think the devil wasn't building strongholds there of depression, imaginations? And what was David's answer to all of that, though? He had an answer. He talked to himself in Psalm 42, and he talked to himself there because it says at the end of that that David did what? It says he encouraged himself in the Lord. And how? How did he do that? By remembering God's past faithfulness, but also the promises that God had given him. That that wasn't going to be his end, and that's what he did. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And there's his second weapon. I will yet praise him. Praise is one of the divinely powerful weapons that God has given us, and it's especially effective for fighting the stronghold of depression. It is, if you're having to deal with that. That's the time to start praising, whether you feel like it or not, because once you start doing it, you'll start feeling like it. I was going to quote this, and I could, but if you would turn to Isaiah 61. Please, Isaiah 61. We're talking about spirit-filled living and praise. And look what it says, Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. And what does it say right there in the middle? The garment of praise. And we said depression is always a spirit. For the what? Spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that all might be glorified. How do you get rid of that spirit of heaviness or depression? Is through praise. That's what it says. And it says that's all in the context of the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. It's praise, spirit-anointed praise. Think about it. When it talks about that Saul was oppressed by an evil spirit, what did he do? 
the Lord's spirit had departed from Saul, and then he was being oppressed by an evil spirit. But it said he would call David, whom the spirit of God was upon. And David would come and play on his harp. And here's what it says. It came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And that's what praise will do. That's a weapon. That's one of the weapons to tear down that stronghold of depression. And a lot of people are dealing with depression. And that's the way you do it. That's the way the Bible teaches to do it. Go back to 2 Corinthians 10. I've given several answers to how to pull down these strongholds, these imaginations that oppose Christ. And we've seen praying in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is one weapon, remembering God's faithfulness and His promises. And I know that's basic, but it's still essential. Praise is an effective weapon. And I want to end with giving you three other weapons. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says this. He says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And look at the end. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. He's using siege warfare language here. When a stronghold was captured and the high towers were pulled down, then the defenders were all taken into captivity. And Paul is likening the defenders to what? To thoughts. Now, I don't think he's talking about like every little individual thought that you have, even though that would come into play. But he's talking about your thinking process. That word for thoughts means your schemes, your plans, your mental outlooks. In other words, here's what he's saying. Once that city's been captured for the Lord and the captives are to be brought into obedience to the Lord that captured it. So it's like this, if I can say it this way. You know, Jesus, a person would say, now Jesus is the Lord of my life. He has captured my soul. That's what he's done if you're saved. And he has a right to govern my way of thinking in everything. And that's what Paul is basically saying there in verse 5. Bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. He's our Lord. He should be controlling all of our thought processes. Spurgeon said it this way. He says, before a person becomes saved, you would put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, darkness for light and light for darkness. He says, but now, now that you've been conquered by the Lord, when he is in a difficulty about a moral question, he asks his Lord. Now, if pleasure tempts him, he judges whether it is sweet. Now, I know how I judged whether I would give in to temptation before I became a Christian and what would be sweet. And he's saying, that's no longer the case if you are a Christian. It says, he judges whether it is sweet by the question whether it would be sweet to his Lord. Now, if a certain doctrine is stated, he weighs it not in the balances of his own thoughts, much less in the scales of popular opinion. But he asks, what did my master say? He suspends his own judgment upon his master's judgment. He does not say, Spurgeon said, I am a law unto myself. That's where we're headed. You know, in Judges, it was cyclical, the way the sin, they would serve the Lord, fall into sin, he would chastise and then he'd send a deliver, and it would keep going cyclical like that if you read the book of Judges. The problem was it wasn't just one concentric circle. It kept getting bigger, and the sin they would fall into and the depravity kept getting worse, and the judgment was longer until you get all the way down to chapters 20 and 21, and that's where you have what? The era we're living in now. 
Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. They had no knowledge of the word. They didn't care what the word said. Even when they're trying to get back right with God, they just did what they thought they should do. And Spurgeon, and the point here is to overcome these strongholds, you have to now as a Christian take every decision you make, everything you do, who you marry, just your ethical decisions, how you run your business, all of that. You take it to the word. That's the standard that we compare what we should do with. Amen? And that's when you'll live to please God. And it just may very well be we're in a very small minority. We are a small minority as it is. Who is our conscience? Who are we bound to? We're bound to this, like Luther said. We are bound to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. People are changing. People are getting away from truth that was once said and said, well, no, that's no longer truth. If it still appears truth, we're going to be responsible for it, aren't we? People want to talk. They think they can just talk however they want to about the government and how things are run and who's in office. And if one person is in office, they can just run them down and talk about it. Just because everybody's doing that. But what does, if Jesus is your Lord, what does the Bible clearly say in Romans 13? And in 1 Peter, you can't speak evil of dignities. That's a risky, very risky thing to do. And yet we think we can just do that because, well, everyone else is doing it. That's not the way we should be governing ourselves. That's how these strongholds get built up too. When you give yourself over to the media and all their influences in the world and even what other Christians will say about things. And you start getting influenced by that rather than, well, what does the Bible say? Like Spurgeon said, it doesn't matter what I think. Me personally, I'm not saying, we all should say that. Or what public opinion is. And you start getting governed that way and we're in big trouble here. Big trouble. The other thing I would say to overcoming these strongholds, and this is key too, is we have got to see the power, and we've talked about this some on Wednesdays, the power of the Lord whom we're trusting in. When we're overcoming Satan and his spirits trying to build strongholds in our lives of fear and doubt and depression, when we're trying to overcome that and they seem to be overwhelming us, we need to see that in ourselves we could never overcome that, never overcome those spirits. But what we need to see is that when Jesus, any time he was confronted by Satan himself, to use the words of another man, he routed him. Every time. Every time. It's not like Satan came close to overpowering the Lord. Our Lord routed him every time, whether it was in the wilderness, whether it was in the garden. And we just talked last week about on the cross. He routed the devil every time. And so Satan is no match for our Lord, and he's no match today. What we need to see, what I'm trying to say here is, it is not the power of our faith. It's not like our faith has power. Our faith has no power. The only way our faith has power is when we're using it to trust in the power of the Lord Jesus. And this verse has just been sticking out to me lately, John 14, 13. Jesus said this. It's the only place he says that he will answer. Everywhere else it's the Father. But he says in John 14, 13, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, he says, that will I do. You ask something in his name, he says, just like you saw all the things I did to deliver these people all through the New Testament, he says, I will do that. Today, he's saying that. It's not like you have to have some inherent power. We don't have inherent power. It's have faith in God. Said that before, not faith in your faith. It's faith in his power, his love, 
His goodness, and His willingness to help us, His children. That's what we need to really see. Not look inward and say, do I feel like I have faith? Can you see your God and what He says He will do? And I can trust that. But it's all dependent on Him then, isn't it? He asked those blind men, what do you want for me to do unto you? He's going to be the one to do it. But along with that, and this is my last thing I want to say, is we must see that we are united with Him. And we have His Spirit in us. His power is within us. And therefore, we're like the man with the withered hand a lot of times. We don't have it, do we? But when He says, stretch forth your hand because of His power in us, it's not our power, right? Like with Peter and John, we can do the impossible. We can stretch forth our hand. We can live a holy life. We can overcome sin when we don't think we can. But we have to trust that that power is there, not look at ourselves. If he'd have looked at his hand, he'd be like, I can't, Lord. Can't you see I can't? You're asking me to do that? But faith says what? As I stretch forth, as he makes the effort trusting that the power is going to meet him, he does the impossible. Because he didn't make his hand whole, did he, at all? He didn't at all. It was the power of God. It's the only way that happened. But he had to just trust in it that Jesus would do what he's saying he'll do. That's as simple as faith gets. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we'll end with this. Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. He always leads us in a triumphal procession. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just ask, Lord, to press upon all of our hearts, Lord, that we'll have our eyes open to how the enemy is manipulating, trying to manipulate our minds and our hearts through the media, through this culture, through the world that we live in, and that we are in a warfare, Lord. Ask you'll have us all woken up to that, Lord, so that we're not defeated, that we'll put on the whole armor and not leave it hanging on the rack so that we can stand in this evil day and that we will be those that are standing ready to meet you when you come because we've worn the armor and we've trusted in your mighty power, Lord. And so I just ask you, Father, that you'll make this word real to all of us and you, the knowledge of your presence and that you'll break down the strongholds that are in this church. And I ask, Father, to you that you'll grant repentance to those that need it. Amen. And we just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.